Do you have a story to tell? Here at Rider on the Road, it's the journey that matters. Regardless of where you are on your riding journey, Rider on the Road will inspire you to take your dreams and make them happen. So sit back and enjoy the show as Melinda brings you guests who know what it's like to go it alone and who are willing to reach out to the rest of us by sharing their stories. Authors, publishers, entrepreneurs, people at all stages of the riding journey, just like you and me. It's time, dear listeners, to answer the question for yourselves. Do you have a story to tell? Uh, welcome to Rider on the Road, Cole. Uh, we're all where we're all at different stages of the writing journey, but our destination is the same. Ah, it's a pleasure to join you. Okay, introducing uh, this man who I know through listening to his podcast, The Reasonable Adventurer, and I've been listening for some weeks, and I've gotten to know Cole as a thinking man, and he's very much into, I guess, philosophy of thought. Um, So my introduction today is one of my more challenging undertakings, where I set out this morning to prepare for this interview. I thought I'd fossick around Cole's LinkedIn site and um, educate myself, teach myself a few things about you, Cole, and then we'd be on our way, having met Cole a couple of weeks ago now. Um, yep. I've taken over Cole's house and he's moved on to bigger and better and closer things to the local school and I knew that he was an interesting man and I wanted him on my podcast. Uh, so I thought I had a fair idea and I knew where to start and my notes to myself are how how very, very wrong can a girl be? So here's <laughs> my effort and introducing Dr Cole Jones from Queensland University of Technology He's an entrepreneur educator, senior lecturer at QUT. Prior to that, he was 15 years in the same position at in Tasmania. He's got a PhD in entrepreneurship. He's an author, podcaster, blogger, and he's the alter, ultimate thinking man about thinking itself. Uh, Cole, would you like to tidy up that introduction for me, please? Well, I think you got it right, Mel, when you said that... Uh difficult to introduce because depending on what angle you're coming from, I could be introduced as a lot of things. I remember when I first started working at the University of Tasmania, uh, uh, an occupation or a vocation which not many people would have predicted, you know, only a few years earlier than that, uh, I bumped into someone in the supermarket and they said, oh, what are you doing with yourself these days, you know? And I said, oh, I'm working at the university. And they said, oh, what do you do there? And I said, oh, I do the rubbish. I said, oh, fair enough. And, and they walked off, you know, because that seemed, that seemed like a fair enough thing, you know. They could picture me as a rubbish guy, you know. So um, I think that's one of the things that I actually cherish, actually, is that i very, very comfortable talking to people from the Prime Minister down to, you know, the person who's doing it the hardest in, in, in life. And I always say hello to people when I walk past people if I don't know them, whether that's a Tasmanian trait uh, or just a me trait, I don't know. Um, but... You know, I'm turned 50 in a couple of weeks, three weeks I think it is, and I'm looking forward to reflecting on all the different phases that I've had in my life and then thinking, well, so what are the other phases that might lie, you know, in the in the remaining years? So that'll be, that'll be interesting. But I actually, I'm very happy. I'm very happy that I've done a lot of different things in life so far. 
Yeah, um, and it will be happy birthday to Cole in a few weeks. And I was having a little listen to one of his podcasts recently, and now we're talking to about a very highly educated man who travels around the world talking about entrepreneurship, and he's decided to get a tattoo. Um, mm, so, and if you want to know more about Cole's reasons for getting that tattoo, you've really got to go and listen to The Reasonable uh, Adventurer because it's an interesting story all in itself. I said to my daughter's Cole that I'm going to get myself a tattoo. If it's good enough for Cole, it's good enough for me. Um, now, my youngest daughter goes to school with your youngest son That's and right. she is totally mortified at the fact that her mother's going to get a tattoo. <laughs> well, it depends where you get it, doesn't it? I mean, it depends how many people can see it. <laughs> I said, oh, I'd be really discreet and it'd be very little. <laughs> um, so moving on to the first thing I wanted to talk about in our podcast is um, you have on your website um, some questions about thinking about thinking. And as my audience uh, are writers and would-be writers and hopefully we think very deeply about what we do to share with our readers, um, the questions that you've got are take the time to think about your thinking. Why are you doing what you're doing? What are your motivations? And are you on a, are you on a path with a heart? Um, would you like to talk mm. about some of those ideas? Yeah. Look, I mean, we all get choices in life and a lot of, a lot of the choices we get are, are not so easy. Like we could all decide tomorrow to go off and do something totally different other than the fact that we're tethered to the responsibilities of bringing up our children, of paying our rent and the other sort of things. Writing is one of those pretty cool things that actually enables us to go into any space that we want to. You know, we can – and I'll give you a quick story. It's actually in one of my podcasts. I can't remember which episode, but it would be roughly – well, in fact, it would must be right back near the beginning because um, I actually was in Malaysia when I met this young lady at the airport who was doing a tourist um, survey, you know, exit survey thing. And she, after we did the survey, she asked me, could I help her? She said that, you know, she had a MBA, she had a, a business degree, but she was doing surveys at the, and, and because she was of Indian background in Malaysia, she was quite, um, disadvantaged in terms of her natural progression through life. And she wanted to escape the country. And I said to her, that I, you know, I was very limited in how I could actually help her to escape the country, but she could escape it in her mind, and actually she could start writing a series of books about escaping the country, you know, Penang as it was uh, the place, and uh, and that you know if she really did some research on this and if she wanted to go off and really start thinking about, it, she might actually become quite a well accepted writer uh, of ebooks, you know, no barriers to stopping her getting these published and who knows she may find the wealth to actually get the freedom to leave and so i gave her an idea of how she could think about moving on from her current situation but she still felt very trapped in being in that space and unable to sort of take the first step towards thinking about how she might have this process of emancipation to sort of say well i'm going to do it for myself rather than be saved by someone i'm going to I'm going to, you know, release myself. So that's part of the challenge. And the second part of your question was about the path of the heart. And I think this is most probably the biggest challenge for us all because there's got to be something we do in our lives that is our, the authentic us. It is the, the bit that actually says, well, now it's some me time. 
Um, I'm going even if it's just dreaming, but there's going to be something that allows you to actually say, well, you know, I'm here on the planet for a reason, and I'm going to use my writing, I'm going to use my thinking to go off in that journey, whether it impacts other people or it's just for you. Um, and a lot of people are not on a path of a heart, and it's not because. You know, it's very easy. Life isn't something that sort of just naturally lets everyone follow the path of the heart. Life gets in the way of everybody's aspirations and dreams and we, we end up, you know, having good luck, bad luck. All of those things that visit us, the average person in their life, sort of stop us from just saying how wonderful life is. But um, when I work with my students, especially my postgraduate students, I ask them and very interestingly, the majority of the women that I teach who are sort of aged 30 to, say, 60, they typically say, well, I'm not, am I? I'm not on a path of a heart because I've made so many sacrifices for my husband, for my children, but I never actually got to give 100% at having a go at doing what I actually wanted to do. And I thought I hadn't really thought it through. And it was only when I, this pattern kept happening that it really made me realize just how much of a sacrifice women have to make to live in the world we live in. And we live in a pretty good world. <laughs> this is not Pakistan or Afghanistan or something like that where women have a much harder life of it. So this notion of a, a path of a heart, I think it's sort of it's a good starting point to try and get people to locate themselves. Where are you actually at? What are you trying to do? Um, what could you do? Uh Cole, you're, you're speaking to me directly as as you say those words and it's the purpose for my podcast, Rider on the Road, is to explore the very issues that you've just spoken about so articulately. Um, now, I could jump around to about three of the things I want to talk to you about now, but I'm going to stick rigidly to my script. <laughs> um, but as long course, as you do it, we'll be fine. <laughs> we're all about um, publishing here and we're all about writing our stories and already you're speaking about those things that I just want to go straight to that, but I'm going to stick with the schedule. And uh, one of the things you attended um, the conference in Finland a few years ago, and it was very much an educational or educational uh, keynote speech, I'm guessing. Um, but one of the things you said, and you were talking about education, but again, it could apply to us very, very closely, um, that we all need curiosity, passion, trust and vulnerability with a huge yeah. emphasis on that vulnerability. Would you like to talk to us about that? Yeah, look, it's a funny thing. Growing up as a kid, I I missed out on the whole education bit. I, I loved going to school. I was always ready to go. I couldn't wait to see my friends. For me, education was purely about social interaction with my friends and, and as I got older, a bit of sport. Um, but I didn't learn to write and I didn't learn to read to what you would call an acceptable level for someone who left high school, you know, a grade when I was just turned 15. And I just went off and started working. As a result of knowing that I couldn't write very well and I certainly couldn't read very well, um, I became very good at talking because that was the easiest way to either bluff around things or to just communicate in a way that you know was uh, believable. But as I went through life, I found myself having these moments where I would really stuff something up in life. You know, it could be a relationship. It could be a financial thing. It could be, you know, a whole range of things which then when you look back at it, you think, well, that was a really silly thing to do. And 
by the time I got to sort of age 30, I became a very reflective person. You know, I'd lost a million dollars in a business. Um, really sort of life just sort of came to a screaming halt and everything was different for a, quite a while. I readjusted and found myself accidentally becoming an academic. And I engaged in this thinking about my thinking. That's where it sort of all started for me. I started thinking about things that everything was always about tomorrow up until that point. Whatever had happened today won't matter because there's tomorrow. And then I started thinking about the consequences of, you know, where I was at and started looking back, not right back, not looking for anyone to blame, but just looking back and trying to make sense of things. And I found that I just seemed to have, for whatever reason, a very natural inclination to be vulnerable. I know what I want my students to do, and I know for many of them, especially my international students, it's not easy. It's not easy to reflect and just go through those whys, you know. Oh, you, oh, I feel angry. Oh, why do you feel angry? Oh, because this really upsets me. Oh, why does this upset you? Oh, because... And by the time you get to the seventh and the eighth why, you find out that something happened in their house when they were growing up as a kid and or, or something along those lines, something very personal and intimate. But until we get to that level of intimacy, it's very hard for me to do what I want to do, which is engage in transformational education because transformational learning says that what two things are going to happen. A student is going to be different at the end of it and their ability to see the world is going to be different. So none of that can happen if we're only working around the surface. We have to get inside. So for me to try and create the conditions for that to happen, I have to become very vulnerable, which I'm comfortable to do to them. I have to find different ways and just react to the situations I'm in and find ways to be very authentically vulnerable to them. So that might be me telling them about my history. Uh, it might be just, yeah, just not being the power person in the room. You know, I'm the educator, therefore I'm the powerful person in the room. So I've always worn T-shirts to class. I've always been tried to be the worst-dressed person in the room. I don't want to be the center of attention. I want to be the least obvious. In fact, a lot of times students walk in, they think there's no educator there in the first class. And they start saying, oh, when do you think the educator, when do you think the person's going to get? And then I just stand up after I've been talking to people and say, hi, guys, well, I'm glad you're here type thing. And it's like, oh, he's the educator. Oh, okay. So for me, the vulnerability is very important because there's a barrier of self-protection that I think everyone naturally has, and it's a barrier which gets reinforced, I think, in a lot of traditional schooling, and it's a barrier that stops people from being able to learn about themselves and therefore about the other experiences that they might be able to have. Mm. And that brings us, uh, I guess, directly to the next part of it, and it's about a different kind of student um, for the 21st century and entering into a different kind of world. I know you were in Tasmania, I think, last week or the week before at a conference yep. and you were talking about the changing world and the need to adapt at a quicker rate um, yeah. and preparing ourselves for that change takes a certain kind of learning. And I was just wondering if you'd like to talk about that. Yeah, well, I think what you're doing now is a classic example. I mean, if someone said to you six months ago, do you know what you need to know to have your own podcast show? You know, you might have sort of said, well, no, I don't. <laughs> but you have the courage to work through the process. You muck a few things up and you, it's a learning curve the whole way through, yeah? And it's that type of 
it's that type of approach to life that we're we're all going to need to be embracing because you know I remember um, 1980 I left uh, high school and my girlfriend who I met just after that at the time she was uh, 15 she went and did the public service exam which in those days you just did the Commonwealth public service exam if you were finishing grade 10 and then she got a job she's still there today in a couple of years time she'll be retired uh, in the mid fifties, with 40, 40 years of service, you'll be on a wonderful uh, pension. Now, you could do that when we were young. When we were young, those sorts of long opportunities for employment existed. They don't exist anymore. If you want to be a teacher, my daughter wants to be a teacher. Well, there's lots of contract works, that, and and you know, not a lot of job security for a lot of people trying to get into that space, especially if you want to do what you want to do. And the knowledge that we use in the workplace, it's changing all the time. You know, we're on Skype today, but maybe in six months' time, people will say, ah, that's no good. There's this new one called X, Y, and Z. You know, and we'll all have to go over and, you know, migrate ourselves to that or whatever the case may be. Everything is changing. The knowledge that we assume, if you go to the doctor and say, oh, I think you've got this problem, you know, the doctor might, and you might have had the problem 20 years ago. Well, the chances that the doctor's going to give you the same remedy. And he's not very great because in the last 20 years, everything in medicine's changed, everything, from the way we think about a patient to the way we treat a patient or, or the symptoms to the way all those things, what we understand, everything's changed. You know, I think the only thing that hasn't changed in medicine in the last 20 years is what we know about the elephant man because we've still only got that one single case study of John Merrick. That's the only recorded case but that's it everything else is just exploding and exploding so um i want my students to be excited about a future that can't be known in advance so it's something that they actually have to be able to work through so the 21st century skills really are about helping people to be able to work through something and there's that lovely african saying that you know if you want to go somewhere quickly go now if you want to go far, go together. And that's a big part of these 21st century learning skills are always about can you work with other people? Can you communicate in effective ways? Can you sell things? Can you solve problems together? You know, that type of thinking. And, you know, people don't do a lot by themselves. Mm. And when I think someone succeeds or fails, they tend to be a, a hero by themselves or a failure by themselves, but actually in the middle of all of that, there's a lot of people working together. And I think that um, sums up very, very succinctly the indie publishing world. And um, again, the next point that I bring up is the enormous opportunities in the global marketplace uh, for people who you've just described who are prepared to upskill, if you like. And as you said, I'm in the process of doing that. And had I been that person and joined the public service in my late teens, as my sister wanted yep. me to be, I would be very secure, very stable and retiring right now. Unfortunately, I didn't. I haven't and I'm not. Um, but I think I'm very well placed to embrace what's happening next and to teach my daughters that there's nothing as sure as change and you, and you need to keep moving forward. Um, you talk about... 
um, where is it? It was 50% of all the workforce will be freelancers by 2020. And you referred to mm. a book by David Price about how we'll work. Yep. Now he listed, okay. yeah, he listed do it yourself, do it now, do it with friends, do unto others, do it for fun, and do it for all the world to see. And I'm particularly yep. interested in this because this is what indie publishers are doing so very, very well right now. Yeah, look, I, when I met David Price, it was quite interesting. I uh, was at a conference in Newcastle in the UK and I had a presentation in the after, that afternoon. He was giving a keynote um, and, it, you know, he was going to talk about his book Open, which I hadn't come across at that stage. And I had a presentation on hudagogical learning, which is self-determined learning. And a lot of people were already giving me a bit of a razz instead of saying, you know, why you always have got to bring a new word? You know, why can't you just, you know... Just do what everyone else does, you know. And anyway, halfway through his presentation, he says, and the key to this, which is written in his book, is hudagogical learning. And everybody just turned around because I was at the back of the room. Everyone just turned around and thought, there we go. You know, because everyone was, had bought his logic, you know, and thought, wow, this guy's pretty incredible. But what he was saying, and I noticed it, and uh, I think you, you're going to ask me following on from this about uh, my daughter's uh, playing the piano, so I'll sort of feed it into the, the two of these things, what he was saying is that children today, they, they do learn differently. We can't keep sort of taking them back and saying, and my classic example is, you know, someone in an entrepreneurship class comes in and they've got, they've got something they want to do. They actually want to do it, right? And I, if I've scheduled something for week eight, but they want to know it now, you can't say to that kid, Hey, uh, yeah, I know. I know you need to know it today, but we're actually going to do it in week eight, right? So once you actually give students that that sort of uh, autonomy in the classroom and you sort of say, well, what is it you want to do and how can I help you on that journey? Then there, there, there are no schedules where things just unfold naturally because they're curious. They can go to Google. They can just jump on there and they can find things. And it's amazing the skills that they actually have, but it's like, are we assuming that the skills are just for their entertainment or can we model those skills so they're actually for their development and survival in this world of constant change? And so I actually think the learners of today are potentially easier for us to work with if only we design the education and experience around the skills that they naturally have, these digital natives. So... And I was reminded of this a couple of Christmases ago when my daughter, who at those would have been seven, six, something like that, and she just came out, she picked up um, one of the other kids' keyboard, and she said, I'm going to play Happy Birthday. And I was sort of busy doing some cooking. I wasn't really paying a lot of attention. And she backwards and forwards a little bit. And before you knew it, in five or ten minutes, she said, what about this? And she played it on the keyboard. And I said to her, wow, I, I – being such a brilliant father, said to her, I didn't realise you could do that. And she said, well, I couldn't before, but I can now. And she had on her iPad looked up how to play the piano. And it was there. It was a, it was a very simple little chart that actually said these are the keys and, and just follow through and she knew what the keys of the, the song were, for, um, you know. And I just thought, that's it, you know. They don't have to wait for us in this day and age. If children are waiting on educators for something, then we're doing them a disservice. We should be finding out what it is they want 
and then trying to sort of work with them? I I think this has got to be a conversation for another day, Cole, because as you know, I'm an English teacher and I'm yep. working in a local private high school here and not a lot of what you describe is happening and it's really sad to see that... Um, Do you think the kids are capable? Do you think there's a capability there with the kids? I think the kids are more than capable. And I think the teachers are more than capable of delivering. Um, But the system and the curriculum is holding everybody back. That's my personal opinion. Um, We're getting a whole lot of feedback in this. Is that going to be a problem? I'm not getting any feedback at my end. Mm. Okay, well, we'll close our eyes and pretend it's not happening and pray that we can fix it. <laughs> uh, if you want, if, 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 do, you want to, do you want to just cut it and then dial me straight back and we can sort of see if that fixes it? It's actually gone away can, now. It only seems to be when I'm it? speaking, not when you're speaking. Yeah. I'm, I'm hearing myself. I wonder if you've got the gain on your, on, on your microphone. I wonder if the gain is up too high. When you talk, is there a, a light that's coming on? Yes. yes. Sure. Yeah. So is that because sometimes it'll sort of say, "Well, here's the safe range," and if you've got the your input gain is a bit too high, sometimes that will provide a little bit of feedback. So I'll move the mic away a bit, see if that helps. Yeah, that could that could do it. Yeah. Um, All right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Just as you were saying that, I found this little booklet here, which is from one of the places I went to in Finland and it's really cool. Uh, These are the themes of learning in in Finland. Citizenship, education, entrepreneurship, education, science, art and club activities. And we don't have actually have it written in here but they define entrepreneurship education in Finland as who does and then they list 20 activities. Who takes responsibility for this? Who does this? Who does that? Who devises this? Who does this? And it's like if the student is the answer, it's entrepreneurship education. If the educator is the answer, then it's not. And so they have an entirely different way of thinking about And it's that uh, capacity building. It's that building this confidence and ability to actually have this what we call self-negotiated action. Something I want to do and I know what to do in order to actually move towards it. I don't have to know everything, but I know that I would need to go and talk to somebody or I know that I would need to go and arrange for these resources. And it's that confidence. Uh, I think homeschoolers do what you're describing very, very well. Uh, I took my daughters out of the schooling system for some of their primary years and the joys that we had. My eldest daughter finished a novel, a 30,000, 40,000-word novel, um, and has that intrinsic satisfaction of completing a project. Um, and my yep. youngest daughter, who throws books at us and says, I hate reading, actually wrote a script and put it to music and made all the credits and things. It was an experience that I wouldn't give away especially seeing the dependence of some young learners when they turn to adults and they passively receive their education. Um, But, again, that's a particular passion of mine and interest of mine, so we'll talk further about that. Um, One of the things that I would like to touch on, 
And again, it applies to us as indie publishers. We want our students to become authors, to create content, to publish it on Amazon where there are no gatekeepers and students can write their own stories, upload them to the world and seek feedback. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I, it's interesting. I was talking to someone last week about um, what is authentic entrepreneurship education and, and I was arguing that authentic entrepreneurship education is where I get the second crack at the assessing. Not the first. I get to do the second um, level of assessment. And um, some of my colleagues were a little bit confused and they're like, how – so who does the first then? You know, like – and it's like, well, the world. The world does the first crack at it. You write the book. In this particular instance, you write a book. You thought about who your audience is. You thought about the, the focus of the book, the length of the book, and who you're pitching it, how and all sorts of stuff. And then you put it out there. And you let people know it's there. And if no one wants to read it, there's the first level of assessment. If everyone loves it, there's the first level of assessment. And so from my perspective, I'm interested in then being able to assess the extent to which people can make sense of that outcome, good, bad, or otherwise, that actually occurred. So getting people to just simply act and move forward and do something, I think is critically important. You know, so we have this thing we talk about, you know, are they, um, are they planning to act or are they acting to plan? And we would rather have people in the second category. Just go and do it. The planning you're doing is during the doing and you'll adjust things as you go along the way. And, you know, you might write your first chapter and think, I don't like it. And so you're going to go back and rewrite it or whatever the case may be. And from my mind, I'd rather do that than spend, spend too much too much time having more of a lot of fun in the plan. Here's the outline of my book. I've just, I've just six months since not doing an outline of my book. I could have, could have written five books. <laughs> I've got, I've, got I've, got a, I've got a friend that's making a surgeon for me and she's, she's, she's the latter. She, she just gets it and does it and does it. And, and I think everybody's got a story in the room, even at a young age. In fact, if you'd like to hope the younger people who been, haven't been bashed up by society's straitjackets might have several stories in them. So let's get them written and let's get them out there, you know. Let's get them co-editing each other's works so that they can start to understand what you would look for. If they understand what you would look for in editing someone else's work, they'll find it much easier to read their own works with more of a critical eye and more of an understanding for where they are likely to be making mistakes in terms of their punctuation or their sentence structure and paragraph structure and all those sorts of things which, you know, will come with time. Yeah. I, most of the schools I work in, I start a creative writing club and yep. the curriculum now is picking up on that creative element and they're creating units where students write their short stories. But unfortunately, the assessment is still very pedagogical. It's still very yep. based on grammar and orientation, story arc, all that kind of thing. So last year I had a group of young people who I encouraged to fly as high as they could and they wrote some of the most amazingly creative stuff and when it came to the assessment and moderation process, we copped a huge wallop because yeah. we didn't meet the assessment criteria. And me being me, stood on my high horse and said, but these guys have written this amazing stuff 
And your kids, yeah, it's um, academically correct, but where's the imagination? Where's the creativity? And yeah. we we got crucified. And I thought I had a great learning curve there. I thought I won't do that again. <laughs> but it it and now I do my I guess my most passionate work at lunchtime as I encourage kids to enter the external writing competitions of which there are more and more, which is good. Uh, and luckily for us, kids are buying into that and they are um, wanting to follow their own writing projects. And I think that's, that's great. Um, and I think they do their best work outside school, which is great. Um, which brings us to our final question or our final point. And I think, I don't know if you're getting some of that feedback as well. Um, nah, but it's okay to fail. It's okay to explore mm. and be vulnerable. And it's um, about being confident to know when to keep going and confident when to walk away. Yeah, well, look, you know, having lived a life where failure was just a part of my everyday life and it really wasn't it ne- i never got down about it my my late father um had an interesting relationship with his parents where by the time i was born he disconnected them he just said get out of my life stop interfering and he was a very principled man he was a school teacher and he basically made the commitment being a zero hypocrite that i'm not going to interfere my parents interfered with my life and I'm not going to interfere with my kids' lives. And he most probably went to the extreme. <laughs> so he never said, have you done your homework? He never said, he, he loved us. He, he, it was through no lack of care. He would just pass on the standard comments to me. I was the only one in the family who was in a really dunce. Uh, he would just simply say, well, mate, it says you haven't been trying hard. You don't take it seriously, blah, 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 blah. We'd have that conversation two or three times a year. And it all worked out okay. You could have, could have ended up in jail, I'm sure. People would have said, well, you know, you could see that coming. But um, I think a part of, as a result of that process, I can see how failure really wasn't that big a deal. There were other times in my life playing sport where I would overly worry about things like getting hit by a cricket ball and I would become preoccupied with certain things. And so now with my son, um, who's in grade eight, I'm forever telling him, to have a positive mindset when he plays his sport. Don't worry about the things that could happen. Just go out there and focus on what you want to happen. And I can see how that can have a really positive impact on him. Having said all of that, failures are just part of life. I've not met anyone in my time on the planet who hasn't had uh, either moments of failure or lots of failure. Failure is not really the issue. The issue is how you deal with it. And if, let's face it, more often than not, it's just purely socially constructed. There's an expectation society has for you in a particular circumstance and you haven't met that expectation. And you might feel a bit of shame. You might feel like you've missed an opportunity. But it's, but it's very rarely the end of the world. <laughs> and and a, lot of, a lot of students are so pressured into thinking that they have to, I remember seeing this great TED. I can't remember the lady's name. It could have been, but it mostly wasn't the lady who wrote Eat, Pray, whatever. I don't think it was her, but it was someone like that. And she wrote this book, first book. It was a very, very successful book. It definitely got made into a movie. And she's been thinking about the second book now for four or five years. 
and she got up and gave this talk about how she doesn't want to write the second book because she's so scared it won't be as successful as the first book. And I thought, and she was being serious, and I just thought, wow, you know, how sad is it that somebody would create those comparative barriers in their mind so that they, they're not prepared to do something because they're now going to compare it to something they've already done. Yeah. That could have been for the first, someone might have said, you know, J.K. Rowling's books, you know, the first 20-odd uh, pictures of the book were rejected. So, so it's a failure, yeah? The Harry Potter story is no good. It's a failure, isn't it? Everyone just keeps saying it's a failure, but somehow it became something else. And then obviously the movies and everything else that goes with it. So it's just a socially constructed thing. Mm. Someone... Its opinion was, I don't like Harry Potter. That doesn't mean it was a failure. It's just someone's opinion. Eventually, those opinions will prove wrong. (laughs) Very wrong. And do you think that's a wonderful place to end our chat? Because I'm aware I've gone over time as usual. I'm aiming for half an hour podcasts and I just keep talking and my guests keep talking, which is great. But the wonderful, wonderful thing about indie publishing is a we're surrounded mm. by a community that says if you if at first you don't succeed change the cover and put it out again or yep. just keep going and by the way we're here to give you every piece of knowledge that we have to make sure that you succeed uh, and I know that my job is to tell the next person and the next person that they can have a go as well, that it's okay to keep trying. And, yes, I'm an English teacher, but I'm on the same journey that you are and yep. that there's lots of people around us. I wish for my sake, like you you were labelled a dunce when you were young. I was labelled mm. a um, straight high distinction student. And I was never going to go out and follow my dream of just writing my romance novels, which I started down in Tasmania on the West Coast in Rosebury. Yep, right. And I thought I should have just kept going, but I ha- I went and did my PhD and my novel is a literary um, tomb of a thing. But I'm turning back now to what I actually like doing and what I love doing yeah. is writing yeah, writing romance and and helping others on their journey as well, which is the purpose of this podcast and bringing on people like you that give us all permission to say, yeah, we can do this, but we may not get it right. And if someone's going to laugh at us, then that's okay as well. Yeah. Well, look, uh, one of my inspirations in this space is Susan Broadbury, who was a past student of mine, and she's doing very, very well with her, um, her indie book publishing Um She's got so much curiosity. She's gone off. She's talked to so many people. She just picks up the phone. She brings up the people who are the... She's not afraid for someone to say, I don't want to talk to you, right? She can cope with that, right? She's had to cope with lots worse in her life, you know? Uh, And I think any adult, especially mums and dads who have had ups and downs in their life, all of the things that you could worry about, they're sort of inconsequential. They're inconsequential, right? So just pick up the phone and ask someone, say, hey, I'm thinking of doing something in this genre. I'm thinking of doing this, you know, any advice, any suggestions. There is more good human nature in this world than there is bad. So, yes, you'll get someone who doesn't want to return your call or doesn't want to really talk to you. But if you're prepared to encounter that, you'll find the people who actually will talk to you. 
and hopefully they'll give you some great advice and, and help you along the way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's, to me, everything's changed. 20 years ago, if I wanted to be a written author I had, for a book, I had to find a publisher. I had to go through that process, all that rigmarole, back to J.K. Rowling. We'd be on the same bus going home, disappointed that someone doesn't want to buy into our thinking. And now everything's changed. Mm. You just get your, your direct Kindle publishing account and you load it up, find you, make a cover on Canva, and it's out there, mm. you know, and away you go. And, you know, I got a check recently from Amazon for it was only $60. It's not like I'm going to, you know, but I thought to myself, as, as an academic who publishes stuff for nothing, I thought that's pretty good. You know, I was really excited that I got a check from Amazon or, you know, deposit in the bank. And, and I thought, I thought that this is really, really good because it tells me that if I do spend some more, t- put some more time and effort in there and I start thinking about other things that I could put into that space, that eventually I might end up with 50 or 60 books out there and maybe I'll get $100 a month or I'll get $400 a month or I'll get something, you know. And that's really, it's like everything starts small and it builds up. No one writes a book. And it's just they make a million dollars from it. You know, you hear people pretending they do it, but the reality is little tiny steps. And if you find and you learn from that, you never know what the future may hold. And that's what I like about this. Everyone's entitled to take those first few steps and try. Well, my final question to anyone on my podcast is, would you have one final piece of advice? But, um, Cole, you've just told us. Tiny, tiny steps, one step at a time. We're all very capable of achieving this. But Cole is a seasoned podcaster now, so he knew that final question ahead of me. Um, And one last thing that is very, very interesting, you said ask and you shall receive. I've got people who are coming onto my podcast that I wouldn't have thought in a million years I would approach in real life, but I've sent them an email and they've said, yeah, sure. And so all that mutual learning and that mutual support is out there for all of us, which is fantastic. Absolutely, absolutely. 